more chances in life than Jason Voorhees. It's fourth times the charm, the podcast where every week is a new podcast. I am your host, Ben, alongside Matt. And Matt, you have a doozy for us today, don't you? Yeah, so today's episode is going to be something very special. The concept for today's episode is actually one that preceded the creation of this podcast. It almost existed independently, which would have made this a fifth times a charm podcast instead of a fourth. But we didn't stick to our guns or follow through on that one, but we are today. So let's get ready. We're going to we're gonna intro this, this episode with a little bit of the greatest intro to the greatest movie of John Carpenter's career. Then cue the music. Unsold Dreams, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt. I'm joined today by my noble compatriot, Benjamin. Benjamin, how are you feeling today? All right, he feels like a horse, everybody. Uh, I'm just horsing around, Matt. On Unsold Dreams, what we do is we take scripts that have either been published online, were rejected, Basically, we take scripts that aren't ever going to be made into movies, and we give you the opportunity to listen to two non-voice actors who have really no experience being auditory performers outside of talking with our own voices, read through those scripts. Now, this podcast comes from a place near and dear to me. I have dyslexia and other reading disabilities that make reading very much a slog, so I listen to audiobooks and podcasts constantly. The unfortunate thing for me is things like scripts and other like different forms of content posting online, like SCPs for a long time or creepypastas before YouTube blew up. If I wanted to read one, I had to set aside that mental effort and capacity to actually doing it. And on movie scripts or scripts for TV or whatever are long and they take a while to read unless they're pretty short. So what I wanted to do is for those people out there who both want to hear what these scripts are and hear about them. But also so they don't have to sit down and actually read through them. They can listen, follow along at home, and still get the same experience that their other movie, film, and media lovers get from experiencing these cool scripts that are never going to be made into movies. So, Ben, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to do your best to answer it, and then I'll actually answer it afterwards. You ready? Great. Yep, I'm ready. Who's Max Landis? Fourteen. The third graders I worked with today gave equally as appropriate answers to some of my math questions. What I like about Max Landis is I can read one of his scripts and I can point out where he says intermittent explosive disorder as one of the smallest, tiniest, most obscure references to a wrestling television angle. And I'm like, I can relate to that guy. 
that's who Max Landis is to me. And I, I, I can agree with that. There's To me, there's a certain charm to Max Landis as like a public figure. I like his public persona and his performative, honest self online. Kind of for the same reason I like you, Ben. You guys are both deeply passionate. But before I get into it more, just a very quick overview of who Max Landis is, who's the author of the script we are going to be reading today. He's a writer. He's a fantastic writer and pitcher, and he does a very deep and passionate love for films. He became very popular when his first film was directed by a friend with him called Chronicle. In our early friend group, a bunch of us became friends talking about Chronicle as a movie. And then he's gone on to write and produce many other things. Most notably, to me, my favorite project he's putting out is Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, which was on television, had a great cast, was a wild, wild, wild thing. Dirk Gently is one of those shows where I'm shocked they actually were able to make it especially for more than one season i feel like it's one of those shows that shouldn't have happened but i'm so glad it did yeah and from everything i've seen max kind of feels the same way and it got multiple seasons and it was how far it went in the second season and continuing on would have been wild from what we've heard about on his youtube channel up to my knees that show would have got even crazier uh than it was And the books by Douglas Adams are fantastic, too. uh, Dirk Gently was originally a Douglas Adams book, and he adapted it to TV in a modernized way, which is similar to the script we're going to be reading today. When I was interning in Los Angeles in 2017, one of the places I interned, the place across from it Mm -hmm. had a writing room, and it was the writing room for Dirk Gently Season 2. Holy shit. Yeah, so I delivered mail to that building because I'm an intern and an intern is worse than dirt. And I always found an excuse to go over there and I was like, all right, what can I look at? And I saw like a few storyboards just from like the windows being open, Mm -hmm. but I was always hoping that I would get a chance to see Max Landis and like awkwardly force him to sign something for you since you're such a fan of his. Yeah, that would have been a good And that never happened, so... Well, you know, we have the unofficial, official tag now of doing a script by him on our podcast. Yay! We are the hashtag Landis Lads. Yeah, hashtag Landis Lads. To get to where this script is and why we have it and why it got released is because Max Landis has had a very, I would say, prolific YouTube channel and a YouTube exposure. He was on a very popular YouTube series called Movie Fights. And for a long time, was very hot in the media perspective, being on all of these YouTube gaming nerdy stuff because he was like a, he was really good at talking. But what he's best known for, I think, is his voice role in the animated Lasagna Cat. What he's actually most known for, I think, most prolifically, is probably his Death and Return of Superman series, which blew him up on YouTube initially after Chronicle. One of my favorite things he ever made of Wrestling Isn't Wrestling, which I know Ben has strong opinions on. Oh, I like it. It's essentially Max Landis making sense of two decades of weird, bizarre writing from WWE, which really the thesis of his story is that this is one of the few stories in wrestling that actually is consistent. Yeah. But he actually manages to take that one step further. Like, if Max Landis was writing WWE, it would be a much better program. I mean, I agree. I think the very fun thing about this script we're going to be reading today in Max Landis and you, Ben, is part of the reason I am best friends with you and really like Max Landis's work and occasionally message him on Instagram is... 
you two both have a deep and passionate love for storytelling and wrestling, but also something near and dear to my heart since I was maybe seven years old, if not younger, 80s horror movies, slasher movies, and just horror as a concept in general. And today what we're going to be reading is a script called Hellbound. Now, Hellbound was a movie that actually almost got made. Ten months ago, Max Landis posted a rambling video of him eating hot chicken and talking about some old things he did. And the people watching basically talked him into giving a full pitch of a movie that he once almost sold called Hellbound. He didn't get this movie sold apparently because he was a dick to a guy who hated him. And the guy refused to take the meeting. And so thankfully for that, that movie didn't get made and get ruined by some studio. And we have the raw script here. So what we're going to be reading today, as an introduction to all of you, is the first act of the script Hellbound. Hellbound is a dedicated, epic story, and it's told with a love and reverence for the 80s and for those 80s mythology of horror characters. And it kind of comes from the perspective, as he says in his original pitch, that no one's afraid of Chucky, no one's afraid of Freddy or Jason anymore. We all just kind of laugh at it. So why not? Let those characters finally become the protagonists, the, almost the leading characters, necessarily, of a movie about them. What's great about this is it's essentially the horror movie version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. Except you take out Mickey Mouse and you take out Bugs Bunny and you replace them with Pinhead and Freddy Krueger. Yeah, so it should it should be a great time. I just wanted to say before we jump into the script, I want to clarify that Ben and I are not voice actors. I'm dyslexic, so I will mess things up a little bit. But Ben, it's going to be on those snippy yeah. snippies making it sound beautiful. Yeah, I'm going to edit it. So if all goes well, you will not hear any stutters. And I just want you all to know what a Herculean effort this is going to be to get this out in a week if I actually manage to do that. Yeah, big, big ups to Ben on this one. This is going to be the editing... The editing challenge for our podcasting history. I did the I'm going to Instagram message people and get permission to read this script. Uh, Ben's going to do all the work. So with that said, Matt, are you ready to take us down into Hellbound? Holy shit. Hellbound. Was... <laughs> Choo-choo. I will be narrating. Yes. Ben will be doing narration and stage direction. I will be reading some characters, the main character, Clive. Clive is meant to be a 17-year-old black kid who grew up in foster care. Max Landis said he would cast like a young John Boyega, like from Attack the Block, which if you haven't seen that movie, go watch it. It's an incredible film. I am a 27-year-old white guy. So just if you're thinking and watching this, remember that's what the character's supposed to be like. I'm not going to try to do a voice or anything. Hellbound. Written by Max Landis. Based on Sativa, Caffeine, the entire cinematic horror mythopedia of the late 20th and early 21st century. This is a message that Max wrote to us in the screenplay that I'm going to read here. Thank you for joining me here. I am honored that you've chosen to helm this project. Hey, since this is going to never be a real movie, do me a favor and use your imagination cinematography music production design special effects you're the director here after all so read like a director let everything be the best it could be 
I'm directing a lot on the page here. Music cues and such. Oof. Writing like a novel in some places. Why not? I don't normally do that, but I'm doing it just for you. Thanks, Max. So we can collaborate. After all, we're producing this one together. I hope you'll help me make this movie great in your head. That actually is a funny point. Max Landis is a man after my own heart. Is that generally a bad script, like Telltale Signs when you're doing script coverage, is that they'll put the actual direction into the script, whereas the script is really just supposed to be for dialogue and like where you are. This one's for Paul Rust, Matt Gorley, Ryan Hollinger, James Janice, and Adam from Found Flicks, and uh, maybe nobody else. Why not? We start with no studio logos, no production companies. You're in the theater, and the first thing you see is... To what good end is a long life led if you have no friends after you are dead? Philippe Le Marchand, 18th century toy maker. A single piece of paper pinned to a wall blows in the breeze. It's an emotional self-evaluation sheet. It reads, Today I feel... Fuck you! Interior, Hughes House, morning. We begin to scroll across a procession of these sheets, and we realize we're moving in chronological order. At first, all of the responses on the sheets are short and angry, written in the same hand, until they start to grow. Sentences, then paragraphs, more expression, the words ever more cramped on the page, a person's self-discovery captured and crystallized in chronological order until we see... Clive, 17, somber-faced and focused, sitting at his desk, writing the end of the third page of today's self-evaluation. We see him finish with... And I am so grateful. He smiles. Exterior, interior, Hughes House. We explore Hughes House, a mid-level long-stay foster care in the town of Springwood, Ohio. It's a little run down, but the kids look happy. We see Clive tutoring younger kids, palling around with friends, goofing off out in the yard. It's clear he's well-liked, maybe even beloved around here. Out in the yard, they're kicking around a soccer ball. Watch out! I'm a bad man. He passes the ball to a new kid, but then quickly steals the ball back. He accidentally bumps some kids sitting and playing cards, scattering their deck all over the place. Oh, think fast. Antonio Bennett, 13, frail, soft-haired, and angelic, is impressed by Clive's moves. You're Clive, right? Somebody told me you were cool. Really? I mean, yeah. I'm Antonio. I'm new. I'm uh, taking your bed tonight. Clive instantly hugs him. Oh man, a lot of responsibility. Welcome to Hughes' house, man. This is a good place. Gumball! Gumball, 14, cherub-cheeked and always smiling, approaches. Yo, Gumball, take care of my guy Antonio here. He's a prince. Oh, for sure, man. Hey, why do they call you Gumball? Uh, that's uh, just my thing, I guess. They call you Gumball because I... Steals the ball. Chew you up and spit you out. Clive kicks the ball into the goal. The kid who was standing in the goal texting looks annoyed. (laughs) I thought you were nice now. 
Hey, hey, just because I'm nice doesn't mean I won't talk shit. A burly staff member, Reese, calls into the yard. Clive, your dad's here. Clive falters at the words and then shakes his head, smiling, and gives Reese a hug. Aw, shut up, man. Interior batting cages, day. Clive is here with his new foster father. Elliot Nguyen, 50s, Korean, with an earnest, friendly guy who hikes a lot and loves his wife vibe. (coughs) You, Ben. Clive stares at the bat in his hands for a moment, seeming to contemplate it. The ball fires. Clive whiffs again. You can put a bit more aggression in that swing, dude. I just haven't been mad lately, to be honest. I ain't about that. Like, getting in fights or shit. Mom and dad... It seems like a hundred years ago. I got nothing to take out on the ball. That's good, though. Yeah, it's good, and it's because of you and Tina, too, man. I see it. I see it out ahead of me. I thought I was fucked, but now I can feel it, baby. People believing in me. It's giving me energy. Like, damn, I'm gonna make it. You're gonna spend the next ten years watching me do it, too. So thank you, man. Elliot is moved. A ball fires and hits Clive in the arm. Ah, shit! Clive tees up. Uh, you okay? We read this book, Moby Dick. You know Moby Dick? Yeah, of course. They made us read it in school. Depressing. I thought it was inspiring. As I recall, Moby Dick is about one man's hopeless quest to kill a giant whale. The futility of humanity against nature, something like that? Nah. I see chasing the whale. That's inspiring. Captain Ahab, this guy, he didn't try hard enough. That's the lesson. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Shit, that's my lesson. Ahab was a quitter. I would have killed that whale. A ball fires, (laughs) and Clive nails it. Ooh, yeah, I'm nasty. Damn! Exterior, Hugh's house, evening. Clive is being dropped off by Elliot. I'll see you at seven. Clive smiles and waves as Elliot drives off. Something blows up against his leg, and Clive picks it up. It's one of the cards the kids were playing with earlier. An ace of diamonds, but it's... black. Clive hears screaming from inside Hugh's house, and rushes in, dropping the card, which has inexplicably, returned to its former state of red. Interior, Hugh's house, front hall. Clive enters, seeing Marissa Faith, 17, screaming and stomping through another part of the house, pursued by several staff members. Clive, concerned, moves to follow, but a hand on his chest stops him. The hand belongs to Dr. Prosper, 50s. He's no bullshit, Ethically questionable, harsh, but good-hearted, like a charming Hogwarts professor mixed with an unscrupulous prison guard. It's time for your exit interview. Interior, Hugh's house, Dr. Prosper's office. Dr. Prosper's somewhat spartan office would be stodgy if it wasn't lit by high windows left over from when the building must have served some other purpose for the state of Ohio. Dr. Prosper smiles. Eight years in foster care. Three bad placements, criminal behavior. 
he begins to read from a paper. Intermittent Explosive Disorder Oppositional Defiance Disorder Signs of Antisocial Personality Disorder That's what they used to call a sociopath. I don't believe Clive is a fit for our program, and I suggest immediate transfer to a house with more oversight. That was me. That's me three years ago. And you proved me wrong. You proved me wrong. Clive nods and shifts in his seat. Do you have any idea how proud of you I am? How proud of you we all are? I see kids come in here, come out five, ten years later. Between you and me, it's hard. They arrive in pain, and they leave in pain. And then there's you. You're special, (laughs) Clive. From chaos, you brought order. Clive shifts, and a small, proud smile moves his face. He glances down, hiding it. That's why you can't fuck up now, right? You're too close. And Marissa, she's a risk. She's a proven risk to you. You know that. I'm not trying to get involved, okay? Seriously, I'm not. It's just, it's frustrating for me because I feel like when I leave, what's going to happen to her? Like what? I'm going to be at some house five states away. Marissa is not your responsibility. I know that. It just feels wrong. It feels unfair. Dr. Prosper nods. There's a beat. It is unfair. I know you two have come to mean a lot to each other. There's a beat. Clive quietly begins to cry. Dr. Prosper stands up and motions for a hug. Clive hugs him. Squeeze. Interior Hughes house. Multi-purpose room. A little going-away party has been set up for Clive. We have cake, music, and a big banner the kids made that reads, Good luck on your journey. Let's party down. Everyone's having fun until there's the noise of a scuffle outside and Marissa bursts into the room, turning and quickly locking the door behind her. You're leaving tonight and you didn't even fucking tell me? Clive looks to Dr. Prosper as staff members beat on the locked door behind her. Don't look at him! You're crazy. Marissa grabs the going away cake and hurls it across the room, startling the kids. Marissa, you're triggered right now. You never tell someone they're triggered when they're triggered! Marissa flings a chair across the room, Clive backing up as the staff members get the door open and come rushing in. You lied to me. You lied to me, you fucker. You, Come you here. big Come piece here. of shit. I hate you. I hate you, Clive. Clive. Going to the Clive. quiet room. We're going Clive. to the quiet room. Marissa is dragged away by several staff members struggling to restrain her. Marissa flips a table and then rips at the banner on the wall, tearing off the your and the let's party. Kids are all crying and yelling. It's chaos. Marissa. What, bitch? Breathe. Marissa and Clive lock eyes, and she calms. Slightly. 
only for Reese and two more staff members to immediately grab her and drag her out. Clive watches her go, still screaming for him. He stands under the torn banner, which now reads, Good luck on Journey Down. Interior, Hugh's house. Front hall, later. Clive now sits with his bags packed, waiting for Elliot to pick him up. It's 7, it's 7.15, it's 7.45, it's 8.15. Dr. Prosper comes out into the hallway, his face telling a sad story. Interior, Hughes House, Dr. Prosper's office. Dr. Prosper sits back across the desk from Clive. They're listening to Elliot on speakerphone. She, she just collapsed. We, we don't know what's wrong with her. She was doing work in the attic and... And, you know, it's not like she's had a history of health problems, but but mom is 86 now, so... Later, Dr. Prosper sits with Clive, who now looks miserable. The good news is it's only one night. The Nguyen's already booked your flight for tomorrow. But the bad news, we already filled your bed with a new transfer, and Clive, with your records... No other local house will take you. They can't just judge me. On paper, you're high risk. what I do all this work for on myself, then? Listen, Clive, calm. I have a workaround for you. It's gonna be a you-and-me thing. For one night, you're going to be Antonio Bennett. Clive looks confused. You'll take Antonio's file... We have a local couple that just signed up to the waitlist for this sort of situation last week. You're gonna fuck up my life with this shit, man. It's one night. Who's gonna catch you? Me? Mistakes like this happen all the time. They'll take you over the night, send you back tomorrow, in and out, and on your way. Don't play games with me. Dr. Prosper falters at the anger. Clive catches himself. You never tell someone they're triggered when they're triggered. Dr. Prosper nods, understanding, but... It's this or Providence House. And that's four hours away, and you know what kind of kids they have in Providence House. It's hell in there. I'm trying to protect you. Clive looks at him, and then after a beat, nods. Exterior, Hughes House, night. Vernon, 40s, a pudgy, strangely soft and polite-seeming classic dad type, has parked his station wagon out front and is greeting Clive, who's coming out with his bags. Oh, you must be Antonio. Lovely name. Is it Italian? Clive doesn't respond, looking straight down. Oh, I know it probably doesn't feel good right now, but... It's okay, man. Can we just go? Yes. Yes, of course. Interior station wagon, driving. Clive sits, staring out the window blankly as they drive, and notices Vernon kind of dancing to the music on the radio. Hey, I'm sorry if I was rude or something. I'm just feeling a little frustrated, you know? Oh, I totally understand. Sounds like they had a real mix-up. We'll try to make your stay easy breezy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Vernon smiles, pulling into the suburban street. This is us, up here. Wow. Y'all live real close to Hugh House, huh? Springwood's a small town. Vernon pulls into the house, number 1428. Interior, 1428. Guest room. Clive sits down on the bed in the upstairs guest room, alone with his thoughts. 
He unzips his luggage when there's a knock at the window. It's Marissa. Horrified, but unsure what else to do, Clive goes and opens the window, allowing her to climb inside. How did you even find me? I I snuck in the trunk. Oh shit, yeah. If you rewind and look at that scene, you can see Marissa out of focus in the background sneaking into the trunk. Cool movie moment. You told me you'd tell me when you were leaving and you broke your word. It's that simple. Clive indicates they should both lower their voices. I did. I broke my word. You know why? Because I'm scared of you, Riss. I can never tell when you're going to go on your psycho shit and lose it. Mess us both up like you're doing right now. Do you realize how selfish it is for you to come here? Oh, I'm selfish? You left me to fucking rot! You're the one who won't take your meds. You're the one who keeps fucking biting people. He resets. Do you love me? Yes. Then trust me right now, okay? You being here, you stand to really fuck me over. Fuck over everything I've been working towards, right? Breathe. Think about it. Marissa takes a beat and truly looks sorry and confused. Yeah, I'm... uh, This was... uh, an overreaction a little bit. Yeah, maybe. They both laugh nervously and Clive <laughs> moves close to her. <laughs> I love yeah. you. Man, you really fucked me over here. I'm I'm sorry. I'll I'll fix it somehow I Antonio? There's a knock on the door. Uh oh. Hide Interior fourteen twenty eight. Dining room night. Naya, 40s, a warm and fuzzy crystals and chakras type, is serving some food to Clive and Vernon. And that's when I met Naya. She's lived out here since she was a kid. I'm originally from California. That's why I call her my hot West Coast wife. (laughs) Just a little joke. (laughs) Vernon and Naya laugh. Clive looks like... Seeing Marissa sneaking down the stairs, Clive quickly starts eating to get Vernon and Aya's attention. This is good. Marissa nearly gets all the way down the stairs, and Naya nearly sees her. Clive frantically gestures under the table to her to go back upstairs. Marissa retreats. Antonio, do you have any hobbies? Any passions? Anything like that? I like everything. I'm I'm easy, you know, like sort of you make your own time in foster care, so, you know, I, I stay busy. Clive nervously continues eating, distracted by Marissa trying to sneak back down the stairs again as Naya talks. Vernon and I have a lot of little hobbies. Stuff we like to do. Lately, we've gotten very into puzzles. Total puzzle heads! We find it very meditative. Do you meditate, Antonio? Oh, what? No, uh, not not really? Do you like puzzles, Antonio? Like jigsaw puzzles? Marissa gets all the way to the front door and then has to abruptly hide when Vernon stands up, going to a cabinet, getting something out. Clive, nervous about Vernon seeing Marissa, abruptly stands up, but to his shock, he finds himself dizzy. 
disoriented. Oh. Are you feeling all right? Clive's not feeling all right. He's sweating bad. Something overtaking him. I feel... I feel dizzy. Clive stumbles, and Naya and a returning Vernon look concerned. Vernon helping him back into his seat. Relax. Here, sit down. It's probably just stress. Clive nods, dizzy, drugged. Vernon offers him something. Do you think you could solve this? Vernon slides the Magnus Elegy, a gleaming black cube about the size of an apple, across the table. Clive is immediately taken with the cube, falling in and out of focus as he picks it up, looking at it. Uh, what's this? It's called the Magnus Elegy. It's a puzzle box over 200 years old and made just for you. Clive woozily inspects the box. Looking closer, he can see that it's actually covered in engravings and grooves. Not one piece at all, but hundreds of interlocking segments. Try to open it. I feel strange. Solve the puzzle. Open the box. Clive shakes his head, trying to get his wits about him absent-mindedly fidgets with the box, its interlocking pieces moving and shifting with satisfying clicks and whirs. Did you put something in the food? Vernon and Naya just watch. He looks at the stairs where Marissa watches in horror. He gives a little head shake. No. The box clicks, whirs, and then reconfigures itself into a multi-pointed star. Then, nothing. Clive picks up the solved cube, staring at it. Is that it? Did he do it? There's supposed to be a bell. Clive collapses, face first on the table, unconscious, and then falls out of his chair, violently crashing to the floor. Marissa on the stairs flinches in terror. Vernon and I don't seem to care about Clive, but do seem a little bit annoyed. Fuck, did he fail it? No, It opened. There was supposed to be a bell. Naya, did you hear a bell? No. Well, there you fucking go. Either way, it started. He's trapped, so they'll get him on the other side. Help me get him up. Vernon and Naya roughly pick up Clive and drag him to the living room as Marissa edges down the stairs. Where's the cube? He's holding it. Naya tries to pull the cube out of Clive's hand, but his fingers have locked tight around it. Vernon hands her a straight razor. I have to do it? I thought they would take him. Change of plans. Just fucking slit his throat. Marissa smashes a picture frame upstairs, startling Vernon and Naya, as Clive suddenly begins to shake. Flash of a massive black obsidian diamond covered in arcane designs, emerging from an endless nebula of rippling purple smoke. Back to... Clive suddenly sits up and smashes Vernon in the face with the cube, sending him falling backwards through the glass coffee table. Crash! Vernon, holy shit! Clive plants a kick in the center of her chest, sending her flailing into a bookshelf that collapses onto her. Clive shoves himself off, totally dazed, and goes running into the closed glass door to the deck of the house, going crashing through it out to... Exterior, suburban street, continuous... Night. 
a patrol car rolls up the street slowly with its lights off as Officer Blair and Officer Keller peer through the windshield. It was one of these 14-0-something. Neighbor saw a suspicious-looking girl climbing up the side of the house. Clive, now caught up and covered in shattered glass, still clutching the cube, sweaty and hallucinating, stumbles directly into the path of the police car. Wham! It hits him dead on, and he tumbles violently over the hood to come to rest at the base of a street sign. Dazed, delirious, and rapidly losing consciousness, Clive stares up at the sign framed against the moon. Elm Street. Fuck yeah! He loses consciousness. The two officers step out over him. Well, this is bad. Oh, no shit! Did you see where he came from? Uh, he just ran out in the road. Will that be on dash cam? Blair approaches Clive, checking on him. Fuck the dash cam, Jesus! He's all cut up. Oh shit, is he having some kind of seizure? He does seem to be doing that. Fuck, do, do we call a wagon or... Uh, St. James is only ten minutes from here. We'll take him ourselves. Shouldn't we not move him? I don't want to stand here and watch this kid die, Mike. Interior, 1428. Guest room. Continuous. Marissa, back up in the bedroom, watches from the window as the police officers lift Clive into the back of their car. What the fuck? She suddenly has to hide as Vernon enters the room, scrambling under the bed milliseconds before being spotted. There's no one up here. Something must have fallen or something. The fucking cops are here. Vernon crosses to the window, stepping on Maria's hand. She has to stifle a scream of pain as his heel grinds her thumb. No way. Why the fuck are the cops here? I don't know. Vernon storms out of the room, and Marissa creeps after him silently, nursing her hurt hand onto the stairs down to the first floor, where Marissa watches Vernon and Maya scurry around the house through the banister, in and out of her visibility, panicking. Marissa waits for a clear window to the front door. Did something go wrong? Do we run? No. The stakes are too high. They'll just take him to St. James. Where are my car keys? I'm calling Willamette. He'll call Quinn and the rest. Everybody. Vernon nods and then turns the stoves on, picks up a bottle that must be alcohol, and smashes it. Now the whole kitchen is on fire. Vernon and Naya stand framed by the flames. We'll get him at the hospital. Upstairs, Marissa, seeing the fire, ducks out of sight. Interior, cop car, night, continuous. Officer Blair and Keller get in, with Clive, unconscious, loaded in the back. Do we strap him in? No time! How will it look on the report if we don't strap him in? Worse if it also says he's dead! Keller shrugs and Blair starts the car, turning on the sirens and peeling out. But with that motion, we're sucked in through Clive's face, and we punch to... Exterior. Elm Street. Night. Something's... Wrong. Clive's back where he was two scenes ago, collapsed against the Elm Street sign. But now it's night. An awfully strange blue night. Clive stirs, pushing himself to his feet, getting a look at the strange clouds and low-hanging moon above him. 
What is this? Hello? A door somewhere up the street slams, startling him. Clive anxiously starts walking up Elm Street, noticing doors closing and locking, window blinds being drawn. Clive nervously raises his hood. A strange, smirking voice speaks from somewhere. Think you're in the wrong neighborhood, boy. <laughs> Clive spins as he walks, searching for the source of the voice. Instead, he notices that little girls are now watching him from the upper floor windows of every house. Little girls in blood-stained white dresses. No, this isn't real. This can't be real. They begin to sing. Clive begins hurrying up, confused, muttering to himself, and the smirking voice speaks again. Your head's a mess, homeboy. This is gonna be a fun one. Where are you at, then? What happened to me? Where's Marissa? You're worried about little old me? Clive spins and see Marissa has appeared, standing strangely on the sidewalk behind him. Clive hurries to her. Marissa, you can't be here. We gotta go. These people are crazy. But you think I'm crazy. Marissa, please. But it makes sense that I'd be crazy, right? Does it bother you that the only person who could love you is a monster? Clive looks. Her face is a mess of grisly burns and bleached flesh, her body dripping bonelessly to reveal. Who are you? Y'all know who it is. Freddy Krueger. Fuck yeah! Didn't you hear my fucking song? <laughs> Freddy cackles and shoves Clive out into the street. But as he trips on the curb, he's suddenly shrinking, falling into a giant cardboard box on the side of the road. Rain pours down as Clive falls face first onto wet cardboard. He's in a box on the sidewalk, the way people used to leave out unwanted puppies. But instead of puppies, he's surrounded by other Clives. What the fuck? What the fuck? The other Clives are unresponsive and seem dumb and vacant as the rainwater pouring down slowly begins to flood the box, the water level rapidly creeping past his ankles. Hey, help! Help me! Someone get me out of here! All of the duplicate Clives start imitating hey, and calling hey, out for help, help and to get hey, them hey, out, help, drowning help, him help, out and then hey, trying to help, crawl help over me. him in the Someone filthy, rising here. water. Someone Clive is trampled beneath the other Clives, barely able to keep his head up, sputtering for air. A massive Freddy Krueger appears over the box, casting him in shadow and bends down reaching into the box with the giant bladed claw. Oh, little lost pup nobody wanted. The huge blade slices apart the other Clives, turning the rolling water into a stew of blood and organs. Clive, now up to his neck in dirty, bloody, guts-filled water, has to dive beneath the surface to avoid the blades. Interior, terrifying, dingy, hallway, continuous. Clive falls out of the ceiling, soaking wet, thudding to the carpeted floor of a dirty, tenement apartment building hallway. Built to five to one scale, so everything is huge. 
Clive, the height of a child in this yellow-lit, grimy, flickering space, stumbles forward. Clive knows this place from childhood, a place that was haunted and horrifying long before he arrived in this nightmare. This was his childhood home. A silhouette steps into a sickly orange light at the end of the hallway beyond a screen door. Freddy appears, grinning, and yanks the door open. Daddy's home! Clive's father, a monstrous, bloated giant in a filthy wife beater and basketball shorts with white socks, comes storming in, holding a belt, roaring like an animal. Don't play games with me, boy! Don't play games with me! Clive screams and runs from the grotesque manifestation of his father, but every door he tries slams shut just before he can reach it. And then he sees his mother coming up the hall from the other direction. Clive's mother, a sickly, twisted wretch with patches of burnt skin and scabbed arms, clamors towards him on all fours. Where'd you have my shit, kid? Where'd you have my shit? You're playing games with me. I'll show you what happens when you play games, boy. As his monstrous parents converge upon him, Clive shrinks down, helpless, broken. Please, please leave me alone. Everything drops away, and Clive finds himself alone in a spotlight. Freddy steps out of the shadows behind him. Oh, never had a father figure. How about the father finger? Freddy raises a claw to the bloody, helpless Clive and then stabs it into his heart. Clive gasps in agony and there's a metallic clink. Flash 2. Exterior. Icy road outside Chicago. Dawn. Freddy stands alone, confused, in the golden dawn light. He looks around and sees a car overturned on the side of the road, smoking, surrounded by debris and shattered glass. Freddy sees Clive, age seven, kneeling by the flipped car. He looks up. His eyes are entirely black. The car's gas tank bursts into flames and Freddy is suddenly interior. Boiler room. Freddy blinks, shaking his head, dazed, finding himself still stabbing Clive, now in a boiler room. He yanks his claw out of Clive, who falls to the floor, seemingly dead. What? How did we get here? Freddy looks around, clearly disoriented. Oh, how did you... What did you do to me? You want to play games with me? Freddy realizes that Clive seems to have recovered completely from the stabbing. The wounds have vanished as Clive grabs Freddy by the face and smashes his head into the pipes that lined the walls, breaking his nose and caving in his eye socket. What the fuck? Freddy immediately overpowers Clive and slashes him again and again, but as Clive staggers, he grabs Freddy's arm. Clive and Freddy struggle wildly over Freddy's bladed glove, striking the pipes on the walls and the ceiling, sending jets of sparks, steam, and various blasts of scalding oil in all directions as they brawl through the iconic location. Practical effects everywhere. This is the universal stunt show off in this bitch. Lethal weapon me up, son! 
Clive drives Freddy's own claws up through the bottom of his jaw. The entire boiler room explodes into cloudy mist and both of them go crashing down into interior. Elm Street bedroom, continuous. It's a 1960s teen's bedroom. And then Clive and Freddy come exploding up out of the bed and go crashing into the ceiling, destroying a ceiling lamp. They both fall onto the ground, still fighting. What a great reference that is. Yeah, it's fucking sweet. You fucking brat! Freddy slits Clive's throat and hurls him face first into a wall covered in teen heartthrob posters. Crack. Clive leaves a bloody face print on the wall, staggering, shaking, holding his bleeding throat, but then picks up a guitar. Thanks, Jeff Jarrett. And smashes Freddy in the head with it, picks up a lava lamp, and shatters it into the side of Freddy's face. Dumb little shit. Freddy spins around and suddenly five clawed arms burst out of him and slash Clive at once, spraying blood everywhere. But Clive picks up the record player and wings it at Freddy who easily teleports out of the way, appearing behind Clive and just unloads on him in Looney Tunes speed mode. Just Sean wicks the shit out of him with the claws and Clive drops. Clive, tattered and grotesque, Weakly grabs a pencil from the floor and throws it at Freddy. What is this? Why won't you die? Maybe you're just not bad enough to kill me, bitch. Clive shoves himself to his feet, diving at Freddy. He tackles him over the banister and they go crashing down the stairs. Wham, 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 wham. Smash two. Clive's unconscious face asleep in the back of the police car as it speeds through the streets. Interior, Hughes House, evening. Dr. Prosper's walking back to his office, talking to several Hughes House staff members urgently. Search the whole place again. We have to make sure Marissa is a high risk. At first, the intruder ducks behind the desk, trying to hide, but then instantaneously realizes that won't work and pops right back up hand extended for a handshake, smiling. Hello, I'm Andy. There's no time to explain. Okay, so to us, this just looks like a scuzzy, wild-eyed lunatic in his 40s. But sharp eyes will recognize him as Andy Barkley. Early 40s, the child protagonist of the first three Child's Play movies, last seen as an obsessed loner in the underrated cult of Chucky. Highly agree with that statement. Yeah, 100%. That movie was fantastic. Yeah, the other one that came after, though, was <sighs> Things appear to have gotten worse since then. He's got a full-on I Went Crazy beard and is currently wearing a bulletproof vest and a massive necklace of charms, amulets, and what appear to be chicken bones. What's he doing here? He steps around the desk. You have to get all the kids out of here. Now! I'm calling the police. That's a good idea, but do that on your cell phone. Outside, after you get all the kids out of here. There's a, a boy here, Antonio Bennett. Someone's coming looking for him, and they think the world is ending, so they're not going to hesitate to take extreme measures. Do you understand? Be reasonable. Do you think what you're saying sounds reasonable? Dr. Prosper just stares at him in raw confusion. Andy Barkley casually produces a pistol. There's a ticking clock on this! 
Interior, Hugh's house, Antonio's bedroom. Meanwhile, in Antonio and Gumball's shared bedroom, both boys are peering out the window in their dormitory door. Uh, you know that girl who ran away? Yeah, it was Marissa, but... A shape suddenly passes very close to the window. A strange, white face, momentarily visible. And Gumball and Antonio immediately duck into darkness. Only to be startled by the shattering of the window behind them, revealing... Kirsty Cotton. 50s. A woman who looks like she's been through some shit and come out the other side as an absolute maniac. Fans might recognize her as the protagonist of the first two Hellraiser films, but that frail girl is long in the past. Kirstie's hair is a messy bird's nest of dreadlocks and charms, and she wears a bulletproof vest holding a fire axe she used to break the window. Antonio starts to scream, but Gumball covers his mouth, looking towards the door. Kirsty nods, thankfully. I offer you the dangerous adventure of a life worth remembering. Bitch, what the fuck? Come with me, or you'll both die. There's the noise of violence out in the hallway and a muffled scream and a crash. Gumball looks to Antonio. Interior, Hugh's house, Prosper's office. Dr. Prosper is calling the police as Andy stands at the door, peering out into the hallway nervously. With Andy distracted, Dr. Prosper hits a secret panic button on the wall. Interior, Hughes House, hallway. In the hallway, Reese gets a page and starts to head inside. When someone smashes his head into the wall again and again, and then phase first into a glass gods killing him. Interior, Hughes House, Prosper's office, continuous. Andy slams the door shut, but Prosper reaches into his desk and gets a taser. Sir, I wouldn't go out there. Nobody fucks with my kids. Andy shrugs and climbs out the window as Dr. Prosper opens the door and is immediately stabbed in the face and killed. (laughs) Farewell, Prosper. Thank you for believing, but sadly being nice isn't enough to stop a knife cracking through your eye socket and puncturing your brain. Speaking of, interior, Elm Street House, kitchen. Freddy flings Clive into the pots and pans, duplicating into two different Freddies but Clive uses cooking oil and a candle lighter to light one of them on fire. The other Freddy swings his claws up and drives them into Clive's crotch. Clive screams in agony as his penis is presumably shredded, but then seizes the moment to reach over and grab a kitchen knife to stab it into Freddy's crotch. The two men, screaming in pain, blades embedded in each other's groins, begin headbutting each other as they stagger in a circle and... You crazy little fuck. Exterior, Elm Street House, continuous. Freddy and Clive come crashing out the front window of the Elm Street House, both landing on the front lawn, exhausted. Slowly, shakily, they both start to try to get to their feet. Clive notices it's not just his flesh that's healing, it's his clothes. While he's distracted at this phenomenon, Freddy vanishes only to reappear behind Clive and slash across the spine. Clive goes down, his legs twitching, and then lays still. I could do this forever. I could do this a thousand years. Then we'll do it for a thousand years. Let's go! Clive, his wound slowly healing, shakily turns over. Freddy regards him, and then takes a beat, thinking. Why can't I see all your memories? 
Normally, I can see someone's whole mind through their dreams. Dreams? I'm not sleeping. Freddy is a very minor, confused reaction. I thought this was a hallucination, man. I think somebody drugged me. You're telling me you don't know what's going on? Freddy looks totally confused now, and Clive uses the moment to try to attack him. Freddy casually teleports out of the way, and Clive goes face first into a tree on his front lawn. Somebody drugged you? Likely story. I'm a bad accident, not a hired killer. I do this on my own time. I do this for me. You ever seen, like, a box? Like a little metal box? Change the shapes? Ladies and gentlemen, he is off his rocker. Maybe that's why I can't kill you. Too retarded. Clive touches his chest, thinking, and we see a flash of a massive black obsidian diamond covered in arcane designs emerging from an endless nebula of rippling purple smoke. Back to... Clive looks up to Freddy. The box. I think it's inside of me. You're gonna have to cut it out. Exterior. St. James Hospital. Emergency Bay. Night. Officer Blair screeches the cop car into the emergency bay of the massive, antiquated St. James Hospital, the biggest building in all of Springwood, an iconic location that will forever be associated with this movie. St. James was built in the 1920s, but had a complete overhaul in 1995. As it is, it's a place frozen in seemingly three eras across the 20th century, with occasional neon... Uh, but our time in the hospital should feel gritty, scary, and real. Consistently horror thriller as our time elsewhere grows more fantastical. Oh. Officer Keller and Officer Blair drag Clive out to paramedics who rush out to reach them. Across the street, Vernon and Naya pull up in their station wagon, parking illegally half up on the curb. They jump out, leaving their keys in the car, and start to rush across the street towards the hospital... Marissa slides out the back of the trunk and then has to quickly duck back behind a car as Naya comes running back. Shit, shit. She rifles through the trunk, fumbling around. Hurry up! I can't find the gun! Fuck it. Let's go! Naya turns off the car and locks it, running towards the hospital with Vernon. Marissa looks down at the revolver she now has and then peeks out from behind the car. At the entrance to the hospital, Clive is being loaded on a stretcher and brought inside. Marissa turns the safety off on the revolver. Clive? Don't worry. I'm coming. Hard cut to... Exterior. Elm Street. Horrible cracking and tearing and bloody gore everywhere as Freddy slowly, agonizingly, rips out the Magnus Elegy, cracking apart Clive's sternum and ribs, shredding his heart and lungs, blood spraying everywhere until... Freddy rips the cube free, raising it in his clawed hand, staring at it in a mix of wonder and confusion. Where did you say you got this? Freddy notices that Clive can't breathe because he's been totally disemboweled and torn to pieces and isn't healing fast, so Freddy just waves his hand over Clive and his wounds violently insta-heal. Oh, fuck! What the hell is this thing, brat? If you don't know, I don't know. Freddy seems lost for a moment, thinking. I only exist in dreams. There's been hints of something bigger, but I can't tell the shape of it. 
kind of feels it's felt for a long time like I'm dreaming too Clive sits up regarding Freddy in a new light curious how'd you end up here were you a person are you a ghost something like that how should I know how the fuck do you not know Freddy again stares at the cube in his hand truly lost in thought trying to remember Clive in agony reaches out his hand Freddy gives him the cube I was murdered Freddy waves his arm and Elm Street falls away we're in a misty dreamscape a surreal vast space shrouded in clouds of fog Freddy looks into the distance and sees a younger human Fred Krueger fleeing from a mob of 1950s white people armed with blunt weapons and torches. The pursuit moves in slow motion, even though Freddy and Clive exist in real time. So you were a person? Lots of people get murdered. They don't become dream demons. Why you? I was a killer in life. That's why they did it. They burned me. What? You just loved killing so much you had to keep going after you were dead? How's that work? <laughs> Freddy turns and looks at Clive, shaking his head, laughing. Why do you care? Because if this is real, I think it would suit us both good to figure out a way out of each other's company. If I'm asleep, I left my girlfriend in a bad situation. So whether this is real or not, you can't kill me, so show me how to get the fuck out. Freddy looks at Clive, seeming to slightly come into himself in a strange way, as though a thought has startled him. I... I don't know. I live in dreams. I'm here. I'm there. I never know why. Except that I'm supposed to kill. It lets me disappear again. Sleep again. It's always teenagers, like you. I've tried different ways to get back to the real world. But I never... It hasn't panned out. (laughs) Why me? I don't know. (laughs) This is the longest conversation I've had in 50 years! Clive looks around the street, which is feeling now more and more like an eerily empty film set. But I didn't fall asleep. I was drugged. I told you. It's a setup. These weird fucks sent me right to you. Yo, do you know anything about your own shit? Like, people just show up and you kill them and you live in dreams. None of this ever comes off as strange to you? I'm God here. (laughs) You don't know how you got here. You don't know how to leave. You're not a god. You're a prisoner. Freddy reacts to this. But before he can speak, there's the sound of a distant bell. Huh? What now? Cue Hellraiser theme by Christopher Young. The entire world goes dark. Every window on every house in the neighborhood starts blasting blue light. Is that you doing that? There's the sound of rattling chains and a blaring angelic chorus that builds slowly from beautiful singing. No way. What is this? 
Freddy steps forward, looking up the street, and suddenly a spotlight shines behind a silhouetted black figure. Freddy shields his eyes. Clive looks at the cube in his hands and starts fidgeting with it as the black figure comes into focus, revealing... Chatterer. That's such a deep eyeless, lipless human horror. Seven feet tall in all black leather. Its ghastly mouth fold wide open by wires. Cold white skin stretched tight. What the fuck is that thing? Clive, focused on the puzzle box, doesn't even look up. If you don't know, I don't know why you think the fuck I would. The bell tolls again and more faint, blurry silhouettes appear in the blue light behind Chatterer. Freddy takes a step back, still shielding his eyes. The world seems to pulse and rattle around him. Freddy flinches at this, then snarls and steps forward. Hey, dickheads! Get off my lawn! (laughs) The Chatterer raises an arm, and there's a chilling rattle of slithering steel as four bladed chains come rocketing out from rifts in space-time. Freddy barely has time to react, flinching backwards as the chains slash and hack and flip him upside down. He lands in a twisted, broken heap next to Clive, groaning in pain, just as Clive solves the cube and it shifts into a diamond shape causing a ripple of reality distortion ripping apart elm street and revealing a fiery twisting void beyond a booming voice speaks surrender the cube nah clive stands up and grabs the dazed but already healing freddy dragging him to his feet hey get off me you little the Chatterer fires dozens of bladed chains at them. Clive grabs Freddy and jumps, tackling them both off the edge of reality, free falling out into nothing. Ah! Shit! As Clive and Freddy fall, all the sound of the movie drops away. Slow motion. Freddy, Clive, the chains nearly catching them. But missing by mere inches, they plunge out into the void, and we hear an iconic guitar riff. Let's get this party started. Guided by the guitars, we see Clive and Freddy falling in slow motion, and we start our opening credits. As Clive and Freddy fall through some sort of warp in reality, they are abruptly falling through an ancient stone tunnel lit with orange light. They pass through massive statues and satanic structures, falling past impossible architecture and massive tributes to all of the different underworld figures of mythology. Hades, Yama, the Buddhist god of hell, Lucifer, Ereshkigal, the Mesopotamian goddess of death. We realize this final tunnel is actually a massive stone zero. As we pull out, 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 out to reveal title, Hellbound. On each guitar lick of the chorus, 
The font of Hellbound changes to represent the title font of a different iconic horror franchise before we slam out to... To be continued. Fuck yeah! Hellbound, baby! What a great start to a movie. And, and this shit only gets more wild. If you've, if you've listened to Max's full pitch for this movie on his YouTube... See, you I haven't. Sh- I've all. This is all I know about this. Which is perfect. I think you should keep it that way. If you don't want to be spoiled by the pitch, when Max releases the rest of this script, we're totally reading through and doing another read through of the whole thing. Well, you know, from Act One forward. What did you think of my Freddy Krueger, Matt? You sounded like Grimace or the Cookie Monster. I like. I imagined. I imagined a, a purple monster in a trash can doing those reading. <laughs> My voice is so tired, Matt. That's what you give me? <laughs> That's the energy you give me here? Hey, it's not Are my, you for real? It's not my fault you sound like fucking Grimace. Welcome to prime time, bitch. I, I re- did you go and listen to Freddy's voice? I did. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah, no, guys, we don't, neither of us sound like fucking Robert England. No. Well, well, part of it, too, is that they distort his voice, and I don't know how to properly distort it. Oh, they do? Yeah, they distort it. They pitch it down. Just do that with your own voice. His voice is literally the opposite of my voice. He has a raspy, high-pitched voice that he uses for Freddy. I'm listening to an audio clip right now. Let me see. Welcome to prime time, bitch. That just sounds like Matt. Welcome to prime time, bitch. That just sounds like Grimace. I'm so Okay, well. It's not bad. I think it's fucking awesome. I don't know. I try. I I tried to at least put the ethos in there. You did. You had the right. You had the right cadence and the right like character behind it. Like it sounded like the same person was saying it, but that Robert England pretending to be Grimace. So I, so I was better than the remake at least. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was that was my bar to pass. Yeah. We you, you you went well past the bar of that fucking remake. Well, I gotta say, there's so many great small bits of this. I I love I love all the callbacks to the different movies. How subtle he plays with it. Well, it it kind of permeates everything in the movie, but it's just all like yeah, just there. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of references that I didn't pick up on. Same. So tell us on our Instagram what your favorite reference you heard in the first act of the of the script was. Yeah. Uh, follow us on Instagram at what is it? Fourth times the charm pod or something. Fourth times the charm official with underscores. They so don't have to type in the underscores. You just type it in, and it still comes up. Um, he's Doctor Gore Wizard. It was that or no Smash spaces. Enigma on Instagram or B Tucker Torch on Twitter. Don't follow him on Instagram. He doesn't post shit. Follow him on Twitter. That shit's fire. My Instagram is pretty awesome, though. Uh, and just a shout out, again, that this script was written by Max Landis. His social media, so you can go give him. If you like the script, even if our reading of it was bad, uh, you can go find it on his Instagram, up to my knees 1988 I just hope through this that we could highlight how much we love this script. That's all I want people to get from this, because this is perfectly paced. I love how he wants us to both be able to enjoy our horror icons as protagonists Mm -hmm. while also giving us a straight up horror movie. That's genius. The characters are all well fleshed out for what they are. Like, damn, you really couldn't book this much better. Over the years we've known each other and the many late, late nights we spent watching horror movies. I swear we've pitched this movie to each other. 
as well. And other combatic adventures into the cinematic horror mythopia. So the only thing I will say, and I do not know how this ends, but the big bad in this needs to be Sutter Kane, and we need to have an existential crisis over who writes the stories in fiction. That's that's my thought. Of course I read Sutter Kane. Damn right. That's the ending me and you want, Ben. I don't think we're going to get a surprise Sutter Kane ending, but I might be proven wrong. I know there's one character coming up that after your Freddy performance, I feel almost obliged to give you the dialogue for. But we're going to have to see next time when the rest of the script gets released. All right. Well, I need a throat lozenge. Hey, Max, if you want to hop in and watch in the mouth of madness with us we'd love to have you it's the best it's uh, the... i i live out here call me babe yeah he's <laughs> oh god and matt play us out all right fine i got it we will see you next time around and maybe you'll like it even more because the fourth time's the charm good night everybody good afternoon Good morning.